In today's episode, we're joined by Judge Bob Sendrich, who was appointed by President Clinton to serve on the federal bench for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Earlier in his career, he was both a public defender and a U.S. attorney working communities in and around Pittsburgh. Tonight at Keeping Our Republic, I'm looking forward to his unique perspective on the role of the judiciary historically and in the months ahead. When Ben Franklin was leaving the Constitution Hall, he was asked if the founders had decided to have a republic or an autocracy. And he said, we have a republic if we can keep it. Judge Bob Sindrich, thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything that you've done for the people of Pennsylvania over the years. Well, thank you for having me. So speaking of Pennsylvania, way, way back when, more than two centuries ago, as our founding fathers gathered and they set up our constitution, they certainly envisioned a role of the judiciary in all aspects of American life, I imagine, but maybe not as much so as we're seeing in recent years of the judiciary and the nexus of electoral politics and how we administer our elections. But I'd be really curious if you could speak to, to the evolution of the role of the judiciary in politics. Yes. Well, you know, as a technical matter, the judiciary is not involved in, quote, politics in terms of it should not be adopting a partisan stance on any matter. But where it does get involved is when there are disputes concerning either what a statute enacted by Congress means and how it's to be applied, or what a clause or words in the Constitution mean, then that is the role of the judiciary. So in effect, they are neutral arbitrators, uh, but only on legal issues. I mean, I, I understand that uh, it's a real world and, and every judge has some background and some inclinations, but as, as a practical matter, their role is limited to interpreting the law, whether it's constitution or a state or a federal law. I, I misspoke. You're absolutely correct, but I'm thinking, for example, of these cases that even now, in an odd number year, we're looking at drawing congressional lines and uh, folks wearing black robes like you used to are, are being tasked uh, with these important questions. Yes, but the background for that is not to try to confer an advantage on either party or any number of parties, but instead it is try to see whether what has been done, usually by the legislature, but sometimes by an independent body, whether what has been done comports with the Constitution. So the overlay is you can reapportionment. I was, I think you know, the chairman of the Pennsylvania Legislative Reapportionment Commission. You can reapportion, but you must do it within the boundaries of the law, which means essentially that you can't do it with a discriminatory intent. We have techniques that are used called packing, which is to pack up into certain districts, minority groups so that you dilute the strength of their vote. Stacking is another device that's used. And the courts, as you know, ever since Baker versus Carr, the courts have not been fully active in this arena, but there are cases by the Supreme Court and the lower courts construing the legality constitutionally or under state law of the reapportionment that has occurred. So before we go any deeper into the discussion, just share with listeners, we have a lot of student listeners, but diverse listeners, so what attracted you at the beginning of your career to pursue a career in law? And let me ask you, when you were sitting there in, in law school, did you think one day you were going to be on the bench? I mean, is that always an aspiration? I really did not 
think about it that way. You know, I came from a very poor coal mine town where after the war, the mines had shut down. And so just getting an education was a chore and getting into law school was another one. And uh, at the time, I really, my first goal was to be a public defender. I had thought that I had been blessed with the opportunity to receive an undergraduate and a law school education at mostly all of it on scholarships, so, which otherwise I wouldn't have been there. What did that mean? That mean I had to do something to pay back to society what had been given to me. So I became a public defender and that was my first job in the law. Well, actually it wasn't, there was, I was a clerk on the court of appeals for the third circuit as my first job, because I couldn't turn that down. And then I went to the army for a short time and then I did public defender job. And that was to fulfill a vow that my classmate and I made in law school that if we got through here and we're become lawyers, we would do something to help. And that classmate, by the way, was now deceased, my dear friend, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Ralph Cowie. And we were the only two in the top of the class, at least, who didn't go on to big firms, which we vowed we wouldn't, but who went on to public service. Let me ask you, all these years later, I mean, was there a particular case uh, or individual with whom you worked uh, when you were a public defender that, that still stands out? We had a chief public defender who was George Ross, who later became a, a state court judge. He was a big, burly guy and was actually very smart, but he was also very earthy. And one day I was in there whining about how the courts would not recognize a constitutional issue if it floated down off the ceiling and landed on their head. And he started going, well, did you think somehow that document in the archives in Washington that we call the constitution was self-enforcing. What the hell do you think you're doing? And it woke me up in a way that even three years of law school didn't wake me up to the job of a lawyer and to maintain a just society under the law. And also the idea that the fact that you write something down either as a law or as a constitution doesn't mean that it will be followed unless we, the people make it happen. So. It, it, you, you alluded to your upbringing and we take a look in even recent years, just how much has changed in the demographics and the economy of Western Pennsylvania. It's just remarkable. I mean, you have certain counties that the Gore Lieberman 20 or 2000 ticket, they were winning 75%. And now the Trump Pence ticket 20 some years later, they were winning 20, they, you know, the Democrats were winning 20%. It's just amazing how much has changed. So what, just give folks a little more flavor of, of these communities that, that you know so well, so well in the hills outside of Pittsburgh. Yes. Well, uh, ours was a coal mining community. And uh, during the war, of course, there was a huge demand for coal. And it was a bustling, booming, small community in, in the foothills of Appalachia. And those are good people. Many of them were foreign-born or were the descendants of foreign-born people who were brought here to the states to work the mines and the mills. And they were ardent citizens. I mean, they really believed in the United States and uh, those values were inculcated throughout our schools, throughout our town. But I think over the years, as more and more of these people grew up with a despairing future, with the idea that they can't get anywhere or do anything because of where they came from and because of the income levels that, that they have, 
think some of those people became disillusioned. Well, I know they have. And I think that in part accounts for uh, the change in the electorate in terms of what it's seeking. Some, in some ways, it's seeking revenge for being left out, revenge for not having the same educational opportunity. Uh, I think in part that explains it, but I didn't see any of that. It was different. We were post-World War II. I was born during World War II. My father was in the 82nd Airborne. I remember him coming home, and I remember the victory parades and all the other things. And so it was a different era. And none of us, we knew we were poor, but we never felt deprived. And we always had the belief that we could succeed if we worked hard enough. And I guess had a little bit of luck, as I did. Let me ask you, I mean, it does certainly seem that this country has just gotten so divided. And there's been plenty that's been written that, that is likening this to the 1860s, the years before the Civil War. And I don't want to go there with this discussion. But it, one thing that particularly, I just, I don't know when this happened, but it seems very common in the mainstream media, and certainly more partisan outlets, is we refer to Democratic judges or Republican judges, not federal judges or judges appointed by XYZ president. I mean, can, can you point to when that might've happened and why? I think that's fairly recent. I mean, obviously we always had judges who got appointed by whichever party was in power, federal judges, at least states in Pennsylvania, the state court judges are all elected from the Supreme court on down, but in the federal system, they were always appointed. And that means whichever senators uh, from your state. Uh, and whatever party they were in would be more likely, although not always, to pick people of their own party. And that bench was evenly split between Republican appointees and Democratic appointees. And I did not see any substantial difference between how Judge A, a, a Republican, ruled and Judge B, a Democrat, ruled. As a matter of fact, my closest friends on that court were Republican judges, some of them older, who I admired, who had great intelligence and great integrity. So, yeah, that's, it's more, I think it's a newer phenomenon that we align a judge and expect the judge to rule in accordance with whatever his political party or her political party is. So uh, I alluded to the Gore-Lieberman ticket and uh, the victories they had in some of the counties out there in Western Pennsylvania that are now solidly red. Um, I think for a lot of Americans who have never been in a courtroom, uh, they learned quite a bit during that post-election period, November, December of 2000, just 23 short years ago. Um, they learned, number one, just how fragile the post-election period is and how many twists and turns there are. And number two, they said, oh, wow, there is a nexus. There is a role that the judiciary plays, as we alluded to at the beginning of the discussion. But if we can go in the time machine, if you can go back to that period and you know maybe what you learned during that as the whole nation, as the whole world watched the, the saga of election 2000. It's interesting how all this came to be, but don't discount sinister forces. Someone who is, has a mind to destroying government, maybe because they're angry about it, maybe because they feel they've been maltreated by it for whatever reason. One of the first places you want to do is undermine confidence in public institutions, be they schools and teachers, be they judges, be they legislators, be they the agencies of the federal government. Undermining that confidence means there can be no certainty. Nobody believes it. So if the public is given to believe that the judge is only going to do whatever benefits his or her party, 
or former party, because most of them become very neutral when they're on the bench, uh, then that undermines that institution. You know, think about it. Courts have no armies. Courts have no Praetorian Guard. Courts are obeyed because people believe in them and only because people believe in them, because they believe in a system. If they cease to believe in that system, there is no way. I mean, I used to marvel and I'd hear a case and I'd make a ruling against the government of the United States of America. And sometimes there were bigger cases, environmental cases. Sometimes there were criminal cases with constitutional issues. What amazed me is that some lone judge sitting in Pittsburgh can sign an order and the whole United States government says, yes, sir, or they appeal. But basically they say, yes, sir, we understand the system. We have a dispute. You are the means of resolving that dispute, and we will follow it. Without that voluntary adherence to a system of law, we're doomed. So, as I say, I do not discount chicanery in the equation by effectively destroying confidence in the work of the judiciary or the legislature. You and I have spoken quite a bit in recent months about the case that was pending before the Supreme Court, the Moore v. Harper case out of North Carolina that had to do with the, among other topics, the independent state legislature theory. Maybe you could speak to that and then bigger picture as we pivot the landscape over the next year through a legal lens, through a constitutional lens, some questions that might come up, be it in Pennsylvania or nationwide. Yes, I mean, th that case was frightening if for no other reason than it had to go to the Supreme Court of the United States to decide what, to most constitutional scholars, uh, at least any who are not entirely partisan, who are fairly balanced in your opinion, this was lunacy. There can be no democracy when the power of the people, by a majority of their vote, can be usurped for any reason that the usurper sees. And for me, that was one of the most frightening cases that, that I've had encountered since I became a lawyer in 1968. So it's been a long time. And, and as you look at the landscape of open legal questions or questions that could be poked and prodded by litigants either before election day, 2024 or in the days after election day, give a sense of maybe some of the arguments uh, that are out there. Well, we've talked about due process, equal protection, for example. Yeah, that, that, that would be one. But the problem is you first have to conduct a, an election and then you have to, what's the word I want to use? You have to have an election people believe it. It's all for naught if the course of action to undermine confidence in the election and in to all of the instruments of government is successful, which means the election means essentially nothing. It doesn't have to be a majority of the people who reject the election. It just has to be enough to create chaos in a civilized society, enough of people who feel they've been wrong. And that to me is the greatest danger is how do we combat that? I think the work of KOR is very important in that regard in that what it tries to do is teach, uh, let people know what their rights are, how the electoral system works, how the checks and balances are built into the system. I think that's very important work. Well, thank you. And we're honored to have uh, your perspective. And as a member of the team, as we wind down and you've been super generous uh, with, with your time, 
what, I don't know when the expression began, the court of public opinion, but there's always been a distinction between a court of law and what happens in those hallowed halls and then the court of public opinion. But it seems that now this chasm is growing deeper and that there's folks on both sides of the political aisle that say, well, if we just cry loudly in the streets or we take to the airwaves, we can influence what happens inside. But I'd be really curious at your perspective on this, because it just does seem that this year ahead in our democracy is increasingly fragile. And this certainly is an undercurrent of that. Uh, fragility. Yes. A good word to describe the current state of our democracy. I really actually believe that. And I understand that we have a first amendment, which allows us to have robust opinions and to express them freely. So it's a dilemma we create that is created by a constitutional form of government. So we, you or I, nor anybody should be seen to be stifling or curtailing people from speaking their opinion, even if their opinion is they don't like our government. That doesn't mean, however, that there are limits to public discourse and there are limits to what a person can say. You know, we're in that situation right now with the claims regarding the 2020 election. And those claims have been made repeatedly, are still being made. So some of that then now is translated into criminal cases. So you can act in such a way as to undermine to a degree that is illegal. You're, you're undermining your own country. You, you know, the, the, the strongest word for it be, be treasonous behavior. If the, if the conduct you engage in is intended to overturn your government, as opposed to working within your government, then you're beyond the boundary. My, my understanding is that in the days after the 2020 election, months and now three years, almost three years later, the Pennsylvania was ground zero. There were more election-related pieces of litigation than anywhere else in the country and in, in every level of the uh, court system. So with all that in mind, you know, too often past this prologue, are you optimistic that we're going to have a quote unquote clean election? Or do you think that come Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, we're still waiting because there's some issue that's pending in a Pennsylvania court of law? Uh, I'm predicting there's going to be more litigation and we probably will be delayed. But I'm also predicting that in the end, uh, we will be able to have an election in, in which most of the people will have confidence. It will take some doing, and I hope some speedy decisions by the court. I think leaving those things linger is not good. And in the past, we've seen that. We've seen the courts act rather promptly. Uh, so yes, I do think we're going to have all kinds of challenges. Uh, we still have the whole questions about mail-in ballots and when they can be open. We can have... Now, the, the interesting thing there, in the last election, at least in 20, it was the Republicans who were all against mail-in ballots, and, and they had reasons. They believed that that was an avenue of voting that was open to fraud, too easy to defraud. You didn't have to be there. Um, a, a more cynical assessment of it is uh, that by eliminating mail-in voting, you eliminate a lot of voters who most of whom would be Democrats. I mean, I'm sure some people believe that was a part of the equation. Nonetheless, I see more issues coming up about that. Now, the difference is, in this election, my Republican friends, uh, most of whom are Republican moderates, are very much in favor of mail-in voting. And they see the problems that were created by trying to split the country between the mail-in and non-mail-in, and, and also 
as you and I both know, the simple delay between the vote count that is put on TV and the vote that's actually happening when you have this huge wave of mail-in votes now being counted. It, it created the appearance that there was a Trump landslide when there was not, because all votes weren't in, all, all were counted. So we, I think we need to deal with that issue too, by the way. It'd be better if we had one single source of reporting at, at a given point in time instead of a trickle down, trickle in. So Judge, last question. We ask this of all uh, our guests. Uh, the moniker Keep Our Republic is from an anecdote. A uh, question was posed to Ben Franklin. I don't know if it was on Chestnut Street, but on some street of Philadelphia after the Constitutional Convention. Yes, sir, what government are we creating in there? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. So the show is called If We Can Keep It. With all this in mind and everything that you've seen in your career and that you're hearing in communities across Western Pennsylvania, are you optimistic that we can keep this as we look at the next 250 years of American history? That, that is an open question. I mean, we're one of the longest surviving. Although, you know, there are places like England who've had some form of democracy for longer than we have. And so I'm not sure that we should because there are difficulties and problems in this modern world created by factors that we didn't have to contend with before, like mass media and social media. We just never had that before. But I'm, I'm fairly confident that in the end, people will see the virtue of this republic and want very much to keep it intact. Here, that's a very hardening, positive note to, uh, to end on. And I'm, I'm very grateful for everything you've done uh, over the years and uh, the perspective that you lend each week to, uh, to keep our republic. So thank you, Judge, for joining us and our listeners. Thank you.